This episode of the Zero Cafe podcast is made possible by our partners, Online Influence Institute and VWO. Today I talk with Abby Howe, and she's an optimization consultant and A-B testing QA expert, which makes her the perfect person to talk to about the top 10 reasons that your A-B tests will fail the QA phase. In case you missed the previous episode, uh, last time I spoke with Tawab Jabbar about digital marketing in Nigeria and working remotely as a growth marketeer. You can listen to that episode on www.zero.cafe or in the podcast app you're listening with right now. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 8. Abby, welcome to the Shiro Cafe podcast and uh, with your extensive uh, experience in, in Shiro, uh, 16 years working in, in Shiro in different roles. So what, what kind of roles did you have over the over the years? Oh my goodness, I've probably gone and done all of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I left, um, I did a degree in computer science. Um, I have no idea why I did that. It just seemed like a good choice at the time. Um but one of the modules in computer science was based around usability. And out of the 30-odd modules that I did, that was the only one that piqued my interest in the slightest. Um, so I left uni, and then I started out as a front-end developer, so making it all look very pretty. Um, and then I started working for a company called Love Film, and I came across, much to my own detriment, a gentleman called Craig Sullivan, which I'm sure a few of your listeners may have heard of. And Craig was working as the <clears throat> UX consultant um, for this company called Love Film, which was kind of a precursor to being bought out by Netflix. So you ordered DVDs online, you got them posted through your door, and voila, you had a whole load of stuff to view. And Craig came in and he started talking about all this sort of weird stuff like user sessions and, you know, user research. And as a front-end developer, it really piqued my interest, especially in the first session that he ran with users who came into the Love Film studios. And, you know, we ran them through the website. And it was utter amazement to me that this website, I'd spent hours and hours doing the front-end work on people didn't know how to use it, <laughs> even though I thought it was, you know, really obvious how stuff worked. These users were looking completely perplexed. And that's kind of how I got started into it. So I carried on with the front-end work and then got more and more involved in the UI, UX side of things. And then I noticed that well, Craig noticed actually that I was quite good at breaking stuff and whether or not that's because I'm massively picky and I've got quite high standards about the work I do, but I'm quite critical. So if there was something wrong with the website, it'd always be me saying, well, that's not working and that's awful. Why have you done it like that? And then I kind of moved into doing QA side of stuff as well. Um, at first, that was all kind of very technical. So does it do this? Does it do that? Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. It's broken. It works. And that kind of then morphed more into looking what we would consider UX bugs rather than just functional bugs. So taking all that user research into consideration and then evaluating the websites to see whether or not they were up to par as to what we'd discovered through the user research. And that carried on for many years. <laughs> and then I kind of moved more over to the CRO side of things. So when it became a bit more mainstream. So what we were doing at Love Film was optimization now as you know it. But before anybody really knew it was optimization or any of that kind of work. Um, so it was, it was quite interesting to kind of gradually move through that and then 
I started um, work at Endless Gain. So I did a lot of freelancing before I started at Endless Gain. And then I took on a permanent role and was director of optimization. And that was running quite a few large accounts for them, for their clients and running their optimization programs, really. But doing everything, not just project managing it, I suppose. I never wanted to be shoehorned into just doing that because it's not my bag. I like to be the person that's doing stuff. Um, So involved in all of the user research and looking at the analytics and looking at the business objectives. And then, you know, not necessarily building experiments because my developer days are quite far behind me now. I'm too old and long in the tooth for that kind of malarkey. Um, but designing the tests and specifying them and all of the wireframing and then the analysis post-test as well. Um, so kind of like I've done a bit of everything, yeah. really. But I've always enjoyed pulling stuff apart and critiquing it and just generally being a complete pain in the ass for developers. <laughs> That's the easiest way to put it, yeah, really. <laughs> being critical uh, makes you an annoying teammate, but it's great for Q&A. <laughs> Well, yes, and um, people still hate QA, and I'm I'm still at it, and I think that's probably why I still get quite a lot of work in because people generally hate yeah. QA. They find it so boring and so laborious, and don't necessarily. That's my doorbell. Sorry about that. Um, don't necessarily see the importance of it, but from the work that I've done, actually, QA is one of the things that you really, really need to be looking at. Otherwise, what you're doing is completely pointless. You can't rely on the data that you're getting through as to whether or not something has worked or not, if it doesn't work properly in the first yeah. place. So you might be saying something's a golden egg when actually it's, it's a bit of a turkey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when we're making big business decisions about these experiments that we're running, it's really quite important that we get it yeah. right. So would you say you feel more like a specialist or more like a generalist? Um, I would God, that's a really hard question. Um, I probably would put myself in the generalist category, but with a specialism. So I don't think I'm either end of the scale. You're, you're, you're what we call a, a T-shaped player. That's uh, that's uh, how some growth companies uh, call it. You have the, 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 the top of the T, as in there's a very broad uh, base, and you have a specialism in, in, in a couple of those, uh, those um, uh, areas. Yeah, that's a perfect description of it. I'm not one for formal terminology. <laughs> you, you'll get you'll get the idea by the end of this uh, podcast, I'm sure of it. But yes, that's probably a good way of describing it. But I think anybody in this role needs to have a a good understanding of everything, especially when you're a freelancer or a consultant. Right? It's really hard to get work in if you just say, "Well, I just do this." <laughs> I don't think there's any any point in putting yourself in a particular category. Yeah. I think that kind of limits your options a bit. Um, and, you know, just to get a whole oversight of optimization generally, you need to understand all the facets that make it yeah. up. So, yeah. yeah, being a generalist or T-shape, as you say, is probably quite beneficial. Yeah. I would recommend it. Yeah. yeah. And um, today we're to- going to talk about the top 10 reasons A-B test QA um, fails basically what the, what the zero manager is doing wrong before the whole team is, is doing wrong before it goes to uh, it goes to QA um, 
So did you have to struggle to get to 10 or did you have to struggle to bring it back to 10? <laughs> um, yeah, struggle to keep it to 10, really. Um, there are so many little things that can go wrong, but you can sort of group them into 10 rough categories. Um, but any experiment that you push out is a bit like an octopus, right? There's tentacles going everywhere and the potency for anything to go wrong at any point. And that's probably why I quite enjoy it. Um, but it's also one of the things that make a good QA person, I would say, because you have to be a person of the kind of mentality where you're not following the mainstream of thought. You have to be that person that's going, but what if? And that's one of the really important things about QA. You have to have that way of thinking. So it's just if you have a test, for example, that's um, looking at the PDP or, you know, the standard kind of AB test you might get. You, a QA person wouldn't just be looking at that experiment running on that PDP page. They'd be thinking, okay, so how does this affect if I go through to checkout? Or what are the promotion codes? Are they still working? Are there things mentioned in this test that logically elsewhere should be mentioned on the website? How does it link through from the listing page? All of these kind of different avenues that you could go down that this experiment might potentially sort of impact. You have to kind of think of them all and have that yeah. sort of like not quite linear train of thought. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, and, and there's basically uh, two reasons why it's helpful to keep these uh, these ten things in mind. Of course, uh, one is uh, well, generally, if, if you don't catch them, it's bad for the user experience. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, even when you do catch them, uh, it just takes time. So, if yeah. we can prevent them as as a, as a zero team before they go to QA, it would be it would make things much yeah. faster, and we can uh, put out more things. Exactly that, and um, this is one of the most important things to get across really a QA should be the point of an experiment where you have a look through it and go ah oh, bingo that's perfect we got it all right you know a QA yeah. isn't the point where it should be like oh my god we've listed 20 different issues of the experiment or the client comes back to you and says oh I didn't really think it was going to do that that's not quite a, what I had in mind. That's also a QA issue, right? So it means something hasn't been caught in the entire process that should have been previously. So it's looking at that sort of life cycle as a whole from the very beginning, from the first point where somebody comes up with a bright idea, <laughs> you know, the light bulb goes over the head. QA should really be part of that process from the very beginning, not just the end point before somebody sets something live. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, let's let's start with uh, number one. Uh huh. You didn't specify anything. <laughs> yeah. That that one, that one seems obvious, <laughs> but apparently it's not. It's not. Apparently it's not. So my view on this: every so let's limit it to A/B testing. Every A/B test that you do should be treated as a new feature that you're releasing on a website, right? So. All right, you might not say if you were just doing copy testing, for example, that's an exception. But anything beyond that, you really should be specifying out what you want this experiment to do. Um, it, it could be, it doesn't have to be a formal specification, but just having it written down so that everybody knows what this experiment is going to do, how it's going to function, so the developers know what they're building, so the designers know what roughly the whole game plan is and also so that the client can read through that and understand it from the outset what this 
A-B test running on their website is going to do to their website yeah. and what potential implications that might have for them. So it's just, a, it can even be just a checklist, you know, it's going to do A, B, and C. It's going to run on this page, this page, and this page. All the fundamental things that are probably running through somebody's head who's designing this experiment or have thought about the experiment. It's as simple as just listing it down. And the amount of times that I come across A, B tests that I'm QAing, and there isn't any kind of formal specification. We all bang on about having a hypothesis written down and our audiences and all of that. And that's great and gravy. But when it comes down to what it actually needs to do, sadly, we are somewhat behind the curve on doing that for most A-B tests. And it, it just has such massive benefits for everybody involved in it. And by specifying at the beginning like that, then it means further down the line, like we talked about previously, don't get the hiccups that we see, that I see commonly in QAs when they come to me and that it doesn't look quite right, doesn't really function in the way that it was supposed to. And the client does, doesn't end up throwing their toys out of the pram because what they were expecting is not what they're now looking at. So it's basically getting everybody singing from the same song sheet at the beginning of any A-B test cycle so we all know what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, I mean, you say, well, it should at least be a, a rough description, but a, a description, but I, I think uh, rough can, be, can mean different things for, <laughs> for different yes, people. Yes, it can, um, it can. So it, I think it, it, it helps uh, when you have, uh, at least like you said, also maybe a checklist of things that you need to specify Yep. Um, I don't know, like the audience or the pages it needs to run on. It's helpful to have that uh, um, not just one open field, but already uh, upfront specify yep. the, the things you want to have specified. Yes, exactly. And the detail of that specification will obviously change depending on where you're working on the website. So, for example, if you're running a checkout experiment, then immediately for me, that is a massive red flag, right? That is like risk level 10, basically, because if it goes wrong, you're going to have a really angry client on your, on your case and you don't want that. So, to give you an example, one of the checkout A-B tests that I have run, the specification ran to like over 20 pages worth of details. And that only, that doesn't just include what the experiment needed to do, but also, you know, how do we actually QA this? What processes do we need to do to make sure the changes we've made in the checkout have not totally broken something? And that might be checks that you have to run against the back office with the client to make sure that the orders are going through, you know, running a number of test orders through, all of this kind of information. And maybe I'm just super pessimistic that everything's going to go terribly wrong. And <laughs> I think 2020... That's the assumption you have to have. So well, yes, <laughs> exactly. And I think that pessimism has paid quite, quite well over 2020 and 2021. See, I'm not disappointed about the whole coronavirus thing because I was almost expecting it. But um, yeah, you have to have a degree of pessimism. But it really is about getting that detail in. And people think that, oh my gosh, there's so much effort to do this. Why is she banging on about it? But if you look at it subjectively, and I can do this because I've done so many QAs now, it actually ends up saving time and money in the long run. People don't really see it like that because they just see the immediate impact. It's like, oh God. <laughs> that's like two days worth of QA let's just get this test out the door yeah 
that's not my take on it at all. So no, and and, and uh, you can get it out of the door, but you're probably not measuring uh, what you want to measure if if all of these things go wrong. Exactly right, and you know, as optimizers, we're all based on data. Okay, so the yeah. very least that we can do is ensure that what we're running is gathering correct data in the first place. Um, otherwise, we're kind of you know not practicing what we preach in the slightest. Mm-hmm. So, if if you would if you would uh, need to transfer the QA process to someone else, if you want to train someone, uh, and e- even for if it's uh, for for the same uh, uh, for for a single client. How would you describe it? And I can imagine that there's just no fixed QA. It, it totally depends on the on the experiment, yep. uh, what you need to QA. So h- how do you even approach that? I don't know that you can. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm brutally, if I'm being brutally honest about it. So I've had lots of people ask me over the years to do, oh, can you train us in QA? You must have a set method of doing it. And you, you just just need to be a very pessimistic person. That's the <laughs> yeah. So that's the first point. But I've actually found it, and I have tried several times to kind of put training together for how to do QA. Yeah. And it's almost impossible because, yeah. like you say, not only is it a mindset thing, and you kind of have to have that inbuilt mindset. I don't know that it's necessarily something that you can develop. Um, And also in terms of process, there's only a limited amount that you can standardize as a process. So an example is you might write a QA matrix for a page, right? So you list out all the things that you need to check on a page and have a massive checklist and just go through it as you go through. But the problem is that changes on a client by client basis and a page by page page basis and an experiment by experiment basis so even standardizing that is really difficult and then people will say to me oh well you could automate scripts to run a QA to make sure it's all working right and my argument against that is is yes automating scripts is fine for when you have a, a website that is generally in a fairly stable state okay so nothing really changes so the amount of time that you have to invest in even just creating all those automated scripts that works quite well for a stable environment, but with A-B testing, obviously the life cycle that something is on a website, depending on the traffic volumes, changes, yeah? So if I'm working on a site and a test only needs to run for a week or two weeks or whatever it might be, I'm not going to spend the best part of a day automating a script to test that that's fine and all, all hunky-dory because that experiment will be in the sunset in a few weeks. So that, to me, is wasted effort. So all of my QA kind of, it's literally, it's, it's really dynamic. It, it can't be standardized in any kind of way, particularly within the CRO. Yeah. So yeah, trying to get somebody trained up to do that. Not only do you have, like you say, you have to have this crazy ass mindset of <laughs> weird people like me, but trying to fix that into any kind of structure is quite difficult so it sounds a bit all a bit airy fairy and i'm sure there are people out there that would disagree with what i've just said but i'm gonna say my qa fail rate is probably 99 percent. all of the experiments that i have ever looked at have failed on the first qa and i think that's because i don't have that standard kind of way of dealing with it and, you know, it's paid off because some of the issues that I found have been absolutely catastrophic. Yeah. So 
uh, 15 minutes in and we're at points two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were right about your hour. I can talk, man. You, you think Craig Sullivan can talk. I'm even worse than him. <laughs> Imagine someone doing a podcast with the both of you. <laughs> that would be awesome. I think you're going to ask me about who you should get on here next. I'm going to suggest me and Craig together. It'd be good for comedy value, if nothing else. <laughs> Reason number two, you didn't wireframe or design thoroughly. Yes. Um, yeah, this is a, this is another interesting one. Um, so a lot of times when I've been dealing with experiments that have come to me for QA, I will always look through the wireframes and designs to know what I'm QAing against. And nine times out of 10, I will get one wireframe to describe an experiment that has multiple interactions or steps or parts of a process in order to get through that test for the user. So don't don't present just one wireframe of what it looks like. I need to know what happens if a modal pops up. What happens if there's an error message? How is that supposed to look? Is it the default standard error messaging on the website? Or have you done something crazy with this A-B test that has changed all of that? So for each, it goes back to the specification. For each of those things specified, if you've got a specification, I need wireframes to describe that behavior to me so I know what I'm QAing against. And that also goes back to then helping the client understand what's going to happen further down the line so that they have built up this knowledge of what to expect. It's all about managing client expectations. And if you, you know, even better, an interactive prototype, if it's necessary, why not? I mean, because that kind of describes to everybody what's going to have in a way that requires a minimal amount of time and investment to do. But the clarity that it offers means that, you know, the QA is potentially going to go a lot better at the end of the life cycle rather than if you didn't have it. So, yeah, don't, you know, I, I've, I've had wireframes sent to me on bits of paper. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what it does, Abby. I was like, yeah, that's not really going to help me or, or anybody else for that matter, is it? You know, <laughs> maybe I'm just dealing with really really awful people I don't maybe that's it I don't know but um yeah wireframes and moving on from wireframes you know if you're designing something then you've really got to make sure the design is up to par and especially when it comes to things like branding guidelines because that's another thing that often falls over on a QA is the design hasn't kept to an acceptable within an acceptable tolerance for the client about what they want to see on their website. Um, if you need to have a discussion about the client about going away from their branding or their tone of voice or their imagery guidelines, whatever it is, have that conversation right at the beginning and get it all squared away. Don't just go, yeah, look at this amazing thing we've done. And the client's like, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. So the point about that is, you know, really, if you're going to wireframe it, make sure it's thoroughly wireframed because, again, the developers and the designers and the client and everybody has that expectation. This is that they know, know what they're going to get and not some other nasty surprise. Yeah. Will this work? Hmm, maybe not. Isn't that what we're all trying to figure out? With VWO, create an A-B test different variations of your website to continuously discover the best performing versions that improve conversions. 
Stop guessing. Start A-B testing with VWO today. Reason number three. That's a fun one. Your client side code sucks. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in, in, in general for the website or specifically for the experiment? Well, both actually. Um, so I've been talking about this for years and one of my key arguments is that before you start A-B testing on any website, you really need to get your house in order and understand what you're dealing with, right? So if you think about the way that A-B tests work, 90% of the time, excluding any sort of server-side testing, um, you're dealing with the CSS, HTML, JavaScript, whatever it is that's you know, on the client side, right? So if you have got a website that is producing error after error, there's problems with that code in its generic form. And then you come along and you're like, oh, I'm going to run this A-B test and change all of this stuff, right? And manipulate it to make a page look like I want it to behave or look. You're kind of making really a lot of work for yourself because you're having to get over all those problems that are on the website as it exists. And you're having to work around those in order to get your A-B test to work or look in the, in the way that you want it to. So one of the things that I always recommend is that you do a client, side, uh, client audit on a website and try and get them to get that website code in as good a state as possible. You almost kind of want a clean slate when you're running A-B tests on, on the client website because that makes less work for you. And it also reduces the chances of your test screwing up down the line. Um, another good example of this is, um, and something that I see quite frequently, is an A-B test is running on a client website and it stops working. And you're looking at it and you're thinking, well, it was okay when it went out. I did the QA on it. I know it was fine. And then you realize the client drops you a message because, oh, yeah, we did the site release. Sorry about that. We didn't tell you. And I'm, I'm betting there are a few people listening to this podcast that have come across this situation, right? And that goes, you know, that's the whole problem with client communications and stuff like that. But, you know, trying to try and work on that clean slate is the first most important point. And secondly, to make sure that you're aware of any site changes that happen. But then you're right, um, your code sucks. <laughs> and that's the second point you mentioned. <laughs> Um, I really hope that nobody listening to this is using the what you see is what you get editors that are made available in some testing platforms. I'm not going to name any names or anything like that. But no. They all have it. <laughs> they all have WYSIWYG editors. So. They, will, they will. And, you know, they'll all say, oh, it's brilliant. You know, you can shuffle crap around on this page by moving the mouse and it looks amazing and you know drag and drop and all of this is really not good um just just don't use it because invariably it won't pass qa when you look at it properly um it will add so much weight to the page the performance is impacted um and you're not going to get you know very good cross-device experience on it either so really, you need to make sure you're coding this as a developer would, not as, you know, somebody just sat there pushing stuff around in a browser window. Um, so at all levels, avoid WYSIWYG editors. Yeah. <laughs> and if you don't know how to code, then learn how to code so you're not, you know, relying yeah. on that as a 
a way to generate A/B tests. Yeah. yeah. Or or, or uh, get into contact with a decent uh, freelancer that has uh, some experience. Yes, exactly. And they're hey. they're like hen's teeth as well. Getting decent A/B test developers is a whole different podcast. I'm sure of it. Yeah. <laughs> Reason number four, your A-B tests fail QA is that your QA person is not a QA person. Yes. And we've talked about that a little bit, haven't we? QA people are a unique breed of person, for sure. But I think QA can be broken down uh, to a number of different steps. So, And there's four of them, I reckon. So I reckon you should have a developer QA, right? So this is where you ask the developer to QA their work before they give it to anybody to look at, okay? And they will look at it from a very technical point of view. They'll go, yep, I haven't got any code errors. Everything's functioning, no syntax errors. It's doing exactly what it says against that specification that they wrote for me, right? (laughs) And they will check it in, hopefully, they'll check it cross-device, this is another thing that should go in your specification, Hopefully. by the way. Yes, what devices and browsers it's running on. So you want the developer to kind of do all of that techie stuff, right? Just to make sure it's sound from a technical point of view and a functional point of view. And then you kind of have a QA QA. <laughs> and that person will look at the developer, the code that the developer's done in the test. Once the developer's uh, QA'd it, the QA will then look at it and go, yeah, it passes that box, that box, that box. It looks pretty good against the specification. I'm quite happy with that. But again, a QA person at that level, they may be quite black and white on it. They'll go, yes, it passes all these functional items. You know, the branding is fine. The code is fine. It's good to go. But then you have the next step, which is like a UX QA. So sometimes stuff can get lost in translation between a developer and what comes out on the browser if you like and the UX person is really kind of I don't want to do that sort of soft skills thing but it's looking at it to make sure you know is there enough um, affordance on a particular button is there enough touch space around an element on a mobile device so they're kind of looking at all of those things that help the user experience is the contrast good enough for me to be able to read that is the font large enough for me to be able to be able to read it without squinting, for example. So they're looking at all of those UX elements that we would consider maybe as a separate discipline. I don't know. We should all be part of the same thing. But they're kind of picking up on those and then, you know, assessing whether or not the A-B test is good enough to go out to users. Are they actually going to be able to use what we've proposed? That's the idea. And then you kind of have user acceptance testing, all right? And at this point in the cycle, that might be where your account manager looks at it and goes, oh, that's amazing. Or you send it out to the client and they're like, yeah, I'm happy with that. Or they might come back with, well, it's not quite quite what I was thinking or could you just tweak this or that. But the user acceptance testing really is that final level where it's just little checks and maybe one or two little tweaks just to get it into like pristine condition. Um, so yeah, you shouldn't just, be solely reliant on one QA person to do all of the QA um, unless they've got 16 years of experience of doing this sort of stuff. Because <laughs> I, I guess if you were to describe what I do, it's, it's, it's kind of those different roles that I've just described to you. So I would yeah. cover each of those, but 
and I'm not trying to sound big-headed, but unless you've got sufficient experience, I think it'd be hard to cover that off as just one person doing the role. So the QA should have kind of like these steps through the life cycle so you can check them all off. And then the user experience testing, that should be the final nod to say, yeah, that's good to go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, reason number five, and that seems to me uh, for very practical reasons that it doesn't happen often. But reason number five is you didn't QA on a real device. And yeah. I assume, well, well, you will you will always uh, QA on a device, on a device. But uh, I, I assume this uh, this uh, is is meant for for different devices like phones, tablets, um, desktops, right? Yeah. So I'm gonna say it. Every person involved in A-B testing should have access to a device library. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one, and people always push back on that. And the primary reason, oh, it's too expensive. Actually, a device library, you probably need maybe two mobile phones and a tablet. It's not that much money. When you think about it in those sort of terms, you know, you can buy second-hand devices, And a majority of the, t of the time, you don't want to be looking on the latest and greatest iPhone or the biggest iPhone or a fancy tablet or something like that. Because if you look at the analytics, you'll notice that a lot of people aren't actually using them. The audience isn't using these devices. The majority are not. In fact, most of my testing, um, when we look at the GA, is Samsung S8. <laughs> And an iPhone 6, right? They're not, not the latest and greatest devices, but I can guarantee you, if you're sat doing your AB program, what are you going to have in your hand, right? I know I've got an iPhone 12, right? A mini. There's not many people using those. So there's no point in me QAing on an iPhone 12 mini because that's not what the audience is looking yeah. at the website at. So this kind of goes back to when you're running an A-B test program from a client, you really should have a good understanding of what devices that audience are looking at. And it also relates to who you're targeting your A-B test at, right? So if you're just saying iPhone users, just test it on an iPhone that relates to that audience. So if most of your users are using an iPhone 6, have an iPhone 6 in your hand, right? You can probably pick one up for a couple of hundred quid, you yeah. know? It's not a massive extent expense, and at the very least, your developers should have access to those physical devices. I can't tell you how important that is. And people will always come back and say, oh, you use Brazstack. Brazstack's awesome. Yeah, Brazstack is good, but it's not awesome. <laughs> What people miss about Brazstack is... With browser stack, you're using a mouse to point on elements on a visual representation of a device, okay? So whilst it might tell you if something is working correctly, again, that question of black or white, yes, it does it, no, it doesn't. What it doesn't give you is the feedback of actually using that physical device in your hand. So, you know, you might have a button on there with a mouse on browser stack and you can click on it and it works perfectly. But if you have the device in your hand and you try and tap on it, you've tapped something else because another element is in the way and you go to the wrong place. Yeah. So really having that kind of physical device in your hand is imperative. And again, it's another reason why so many uh, tests fail my QA is because I'm doing the physical device testing and stuff that wouldn't have been picked up, for example, if you were just yeah. using browser stack, um, doesn't get picked up on, but it's actually quite critical to the success of the experiment. 
Yeah, and I, I guess you can, you can, like you said, you can just go to your Google Analytics and device list, and then uh, depending on the diversity of devices and, and the percentage of users you want to cover, yep. you just go down the list and, yeah, and, exactly. and, and buy those. And there's a good clue in GA, actually, is if you're looking at the devices, which ones aren't converting so well, right? So you yeah. need to be looking at those. like, well, why aren't those converting so well? And this is what your initial audit would be picking up on. So you'd be looking at the website on that particular device and trying to figure out why the conversions are so low or the bounce rate so high. And a lot of that will be based around not necessarily the software that the phone is running, but viewport. (laughs) You'd be amazed how many people are using tiny phones. (laughs) And it really does impact on conversion rates. So yeah, I also don't really get the, those huge phones. I mean, uh, mine's pretty uh, pretty big. I'm five point eight inch, I think, um, screen diagonal. But um, um, I'd rather have a smaller one than a big one. But um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, mainly, no. mainly the, the the battery that's a limitation on the small <laughs> smaller ones. It's funny that you should mention that. So I had the iPhone XS, right? Not the massive one, just the standard iPhone XS. And I got so fed up with it, which is why I went down to a 12 mini, because I couldn't hold it in one hand and use it properly. I was literally holding it like a bloody tablet. (laughs) Because I've got like midget fingers and hands and stuff. And I couldn't use it with one hand, with my left hand or my right hand, you know, on their own. And it even down to things like it kept falling out of my back pocket of my jeans. And it was just so unwieldy. When the 12 Mini came out, I was quite relieved that they hadn't gone down there. Oh, let's just create another massive device. You know, it's like, what, I'm going to need like a table to put it on if they get any bigger. (laughs) Yeah, so go go through your Google Analytics, find out the devices people use and just buy those devices. Yes. Reason number six, you didn't QA in the wild. Yeah, so how many people are guilty of doing a, a looking at an A-B test on a preview link. I imagine quite a few people because it's easy, right? Here's a link, here's a preview, looks amazing. I'm not an advocate of that at all. Um, If I can get a test put live on a restricted IP, so I'm lucky enough here to have a static IP, so that's quite straightforward for me. Um, It really is the best way to QA because you get that full-on immersive experience if you like of an a b test running wild on a website um it lets you pick up loads of different things like is there a a b is there a conflict between a b tests is something not quite right with the audiences or the segments or is something not making sense how come i've just been bucketed into a different experience and now the initial experience doesn't it's all confusing um so yeah if you can QA an experiment on a live IP, so out in the world, like you say, it gives a much more accurate representation of how that experiment's going to work. What would be examples of things that don't work with a preview uh, URL, but do work when uh, you you put them in live uh, live mode on, on your IP, for example? Um, so quite a few things. I think the primary one is just making sure that there are no conflicts running. Um, between A-B tests. See that quite a lot where the bucketing isn't working properly. Um, So that's probably the primary thing. But also if you can get it live on an IP, it's also a bit easier to kind of test it on a 4G connection, for example. Uh, That's that's doable. 
Um, so you get a good sort of input on the performance um, as well. So I, I just prefer it. And maybe that's just down to my own sense of being quite pernickety about stuff. I would rather test it on that live IP if I can than have a preview. I'm not a massive fan of previews. I don't care what people say. You need to see it out in the live. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying it as a recommendation. Just Fair do enough. it. Yeah. Reason number seven, you didn't QA for your audience. Yeah, we, we sort of, so yeah, we've kind of covered this a little bit. So the primary reasons around this is making sure you've got that device in your hand that your users are using. And also it's not just devices, but also when it comes to, you know, browsers, for example, not everybody's using Chrome. <laughs> just putting that out there still see yeah. people using internet explorer <laughs> even that one yeah edge. yeah edge exactly i still do get ie coming in even though they've killed it now i still see it coming in um but also another important one is around resolution especially on like desktop as well um a lot of people have big fancy monitors i've got three of them sat in front of me which is awesome nobody at home's generally going to have three massive monitors sat in front of, front of them. And surprisingly, the most common resolution that I see in GA is tiny. It's like laptop size resolution, say 1366 by 768 or something like that. You have a look at a web browser at that resolution. <laughs> Things are different. It's a different world. Yeah, it's different. And sometimes if you get your breakpoints all screwed up, then they're flicked to mobile experiences at that resolution. So that's also something to be quite wary of. Um, it affects the whole QA and the whole yeah. way that your A-B test comes across to your audience. So just be very I, I also see this often. Uh, so when you say targeting your audience, uh, that when you create this uh, whole experience on the on the on the website, which is fine, but if it's targeted at a specific audience, like for example, from uh, people from your newsletter, that's a newsletter campaign that they send over, you need to look at the newsletter. the The message there might be completely different and yeah. aligned <laughs> with what you have on your website, or, or similar with uh, when you create AdWords, for example. Those need to be included in that QA. Yes, exactly, and. Yeah, that's kind of like the next point as well is around this QA mindset. So when you're QAing something, you need to be in that headspace of your users. So like we said, it's not going to be a linear journey. They're not going to go from the home page to a listing page to a product page and, you know, to the basket and then to the checkout. That doesn't happen. You only have to have a stab round in analytics or any other kind of data gathering to understand that's not how users behave. So you need to have this kind of like random, distracted kind of approach to the QA as well. So don't take that linear path. You know, go to a product page first or go to a listing page first or do a search first and then go into the experiment. How does it perform? Yeah, or, and then go get a coffee and then come back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I've drunk, I've done drunk QA before. That was quite a lot of fun. Um <laughs> Everybody should do that just for a laugh, I think. But yeah, it, we we can we can do a live session, uh, like a live Shiro Cafe podcast session, drunk QA, drunk QA, and then we could do like shop bingo for every problem that we find. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> I'll be up for that. <laughs> yeah. 
Yesterday's brainstorm was so good. I really liked Steph's idea of running that test on the call to action buttons. Making them orange will really make them stand out, don't you think? Yeah, right. Do you want to design real A-B test winners and achieve enormous conversion uplift? Then stop brainstorming and take a scientific approach. If you can read Dutch, follow the steps in Online Influence, the bestseller on managementbook.nl. Or enroll in the author's course and become an expert in applying proven behavioral science yourself. Go to onlineinfluence.com for more information and free downloads. I think one one problem with with not not QAing for uh, for the audience uh, that I mean that, that like you said this is the way we work right we're we're usually doing this behind the desk you have your monitor set up you have your nice setup that's not how your users are are using it and often it's uh, it's well more and more often it's it's through a mobile device yep. but you don't do QA all day on a mobile device no at least that's not how you exactly um, that you uh, need and, and same same for the developer and the designer of course mm-hmm. it's not. The, the uh, limited to QA, but no, and you should go outside. How many times are we on our mobile devices outside, right? Not maybe yeah. not in January, <laughs> but in yeah. the summer months, you know, go outside, look at look at what you know. How does bright sunlight affect the user experience? So you know, put yourself in Joe Bloggs's place and imagine what they might be doing. A great example, you know, would be me today. You know, I I could be looking to browse something, but I'm getting a million interruptions from a child asking about fraction questions, for example. So I'm I'm not strictly concentrating on just making that purchase. I've got other things going on. You know, the doorbell's ringing, music playing, the dogs barking. Yeah. You know, it's just just take yourself out of the box. Nobody is yeah. generally sat in front of a computer. You, you also at home, of course, you have a process running that every 15 minutes a doorbell goes. Yeah. There's no one there, right? That's, that's how you QA. Yeah. Everybody's <laughs> getting online deliveries now, right? So. Exactly. Uh, reason number eight, uh, you didn't set it up right. Yeah, so basic fundamentals. So when is the experience going to trigger? Who's going to see it? And what do I need to measure to understand whether this thing even worked <laughs> um they're pretty straightforward fundamentals but again it it takes no time to check whether those things are set up properly and the measurements one is quite interesting a lot of times i see tests that you know they just kind of go off the standard metrics um but what about event tracking for example what extra information can you gain about how this experiment is performed by just, you know, monitoring clicks or, you know, what, what's actually happening. And if you can kind of get that picture through event tracking or, you know, even setting up, for example, Hotjar to run on pages when this experiment is fired, you can get so much extra data and feedback than just relying on whatever your platform says happened why don't you do it? So it's not really an additional amount of extra time to put those elements in and to make sure that they're running correctly. But the benefits you get from having them in just gives you a much more wholesome sort of evaluation of how that experiment performed or didn't. (laughs) And it's a good point to say in there, if you can put in um, some kind of like tripwires to understand that, you know, if your experiment's gone a bit wrong, like it stopped working or 
you know, there's no visitors going through it for whatever reason. If you can put those mechanisms to monitor the experience overall as it's live, then you're going to be in a much better place throughout its life cycle and at the end of it when you're analyzing it. So, yeah. Reason number nine, you thought you were pen or teller. (laughs) For for those who are not familiar with these uh, magicians. They're awesome. <laughs> I love Penn awesome. and Teller. I like magic. Go, go to go to YouTube. Look yeah, up look up Penn and Teller. Yeah, this kind or just of, go to Vegas directly. But if only we, we could when, when you can, of course. Yeah, if only we could fly. <laughs> when you can travel, yeah. I don't know when that's going to be. I'm I'm I'm, I'm wiping out 2021. I think we're all screwed. Yeah. I'm, I'm aiming for 2022. Um, yeah. So this is what we were talking about uh, earlier. In the it's. Um, trying to keep client informed at all points of the process and not doing that. Here's a test that we designed and we're putting it live tomorrow thing. Um, try not to do that. And also set the client's expectation about what is, you know, generally feasible on A-B testing. Some of the clients that I've dealt with have come up with some of the most, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the right word, um, not exciting overly complicated experiments to run you know client side ab is just not possible for what they want to do so it's always setting that expectation of what is feasible and also pulling into a line and reminding them what the business objectives are if they have any and how that testing roadmap should be reflected with that um yeah don't go all sort of crazy and try and rewrite the rule book. Uh, a lot of the clients that I deal with are relatively new to kind of optimization and stuff. So it requires a little bit of a, a gentle footing to introduce them to it. <laughs> and some clients that are really receptive, they're like, oh my God, we want to get going, we want to get going. And that's that's the response that you want. But other clients are a bit more reserved because they're not fully aware of what the whole process is, right? So with those, you have to be a little more gentle. And, you know, if you tailor what you're doing, so you may just start with some copywriting experiments or something like that, but it's more of a gently, gently approach. So it's it's not scaring people off (laughs) before they've even started, (laughs) really. But all of those sort of like concerns, I think, really can be addressed when we talk about the sort of client expectation setting all the way through the cycle so explaining everything because a lot of clients will be nervous it's like what do you mean you're going to run something on my my site that might break it so we can mitigate all those risks so they know exactly what they're getting exactly how it's going to function when it's going to run who it's going to show to and prove to them that we've got a thorough QA process so nothing's going to break mitigating all of those concerns that they might have and also making them realize that just because an A-B test is live doesn't mean it takes, you know, any more than a second to stop it if something goes wrong. If something goes so cataclysmically wrong, it can be stopped in an instant. I think a lot of people kind of miss that point. It really is a button press to stop something that's gone horribly wrong. Not that it should do, because everything should be so thoroughly thought out at the beginning and all the way through the process. Yes, it might fail, but not to a point where it's like, oh, you know, everybody's trying to think of uh, 
how we get out of this situation and how do we explain it? That should never really happen. Yeah. And also kind of explaining them that failure is not bad. Everybody talks about this. Failing is not necessarily bad. You can learn something and take something away from it. It's like, well, we won't do that again. <laughs> you know, yeah. or we'll do it yeah, in a that's, slightly that's different a, way. That's the point I often get. Yeah, it might go uh, horribly wrong. Yeah. And that's my ideal situation, actually, because then we learn something. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> well, uh, maybe not Maybe not the ideal situation. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the, people in the industry are very quick to kind of cite, oh, we, you know, made this much revenue over the past six months or whatever. It's all amazing. But actually, I'm with you on this. I'm more interested in the experiments that failed because it challenges my way of thinking, right? So if I've designed something and it's failed, I'm then thinking, ooh. That's interesting. <laughs> rather than getting a winning experiment where I'm more likely to go, yeah, all right. <laughs> you know, we'll move on to something else. But getting those failures allows you to get a much deeper understanding of how that audience yeah. are behaving on that website, you know. So, getting the getting the wins uh, allows you to stay in your job. Getting the failures allow you to get better at your job. <laughs> yes, I like that. But we wouldn't <laughs> shouldn't just see everything. You know, winners being the only winning criteria. Yes, it's lovely, but does it extend? You know, that knowledge that we're trying to get the very root of. Right, we want to make this so much better for everybody. Failure definitely offers more insights than a win. I think so. Yeah. And, and and I would uh, definitely say don't become teller because teller doesn't for those who don't know teller doesn't doesn't speak at all that that's not helpful that's not helpful uh, when when doing QA. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes I found it useful to bite my tongue rather than say something. So. <laughs> but then at least you have the option. Yeah, teller doesn't, doesn't talk at all. Uh, we we made it almost number ten. Yeah. Uh, experiment pollution. Yeah. Yes. Um. Sorry, I'm just trying to remind myself what I'm talking about here. So, come on then. How many times have you kind of gone into an A-B test platform and there are like a gazillion tests at 100%, running at 100%? Yeah. Yeah. It's one of my biggest bugbears. And there's a couple of reasons for that. A, because of my OCD. So I hate seeing stuff sat in a platform at 100% live when it should be in development, right? The client should be pushing that out onto the site. <laughs> Can't stand lists of stuff. It annoys me. Especially what, then, then they don't realize. Usually, especially now with all the cookies, usually your A-B testing platform goes to a, th a third-party cookie that people need to actively consent to, depending on the country you live in. Uh, but that, that means that part of your users don't see your experiment. So if you put all those things live through your experimentation platform, maybe only 80%, yep. worse, maybe just 70% of the people see, see whatever changes you are making. And if they, those are important changes... They just see the wrong information on your website. Yeah. So it screws all of that up, right? Look, cookies are a whole new podcast. You need to do one of those with a cookie expert. Um, yes. Yeah, so it's not. We, we had a couple of those last year. Uh, I think you probably need to do <laughs> some more now. Keeps, yeah. They, they keep uh, yeah, they keep changing things. So it's a very interesting topic. Yeah. 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 So it's basically don't treat an A-B test platform like a CMS, right? It's not a CMS. <laughs> Get that shit out of there. You don't do it. Um, there's a couple of other issues, you know, the kind of like the more experiments you have, 
running live 100% on these platforms, it's got a performance hit, right? Everybody knows about Screen Flicker. Oh, my God. I mean, how many times have I been on websites recently? It's like, oh, somebody's running an A-B test. It's so obvious. It's awful. That has an impact on conversions in its own right, yeah? If you can see a a page changing in front of your very eyes, you're like, oh, what are they up to? (laughs) Actually, I don't see it that often. So either... I should be worried because no one's running experiments <laughs> <laughs> or those experiment tools are getting really good at this, but yeah. yeah. So there's a performance side of it. And then we go, go back to this layered cake thing that we were talking about earlier about, you know, making sure a client site code is up to par before you start AB testing on it. What then happens if you start putting AB test upon AB test upon AB test upon AB test you know, even running on the same page, let alone on separate pages, and they're all sat in this A-B test platform doing whatever they're doing on that website. How difficult does it then become to QA and isolate your QAs against, you know, this myriad of other experiments that you've got running on the website, right? It makes it infinitely more difficult. So, stop doing that <laughs> yeah. yeah and in terms of page load especially when you create those tests uh, through your WYSIWYG editor yes exactly don't do that either but yes there are massive you know and it's a cumulative effect so it gets worse and worse and worse and more stuff that you keep adding in there and I'm sure people you know who develop these platforms will come back with some clap back and say that's not true I mean you're talking rubbish it is true because I've seen the performance impact on it and the complexities of that and then adds to adding you know your new A-B test that you want to move on with your roadmap or whatever it is it just makes it infinitely more difficult so please please if I had one wish for this year it would be to stop seeing that happening because it just makes it so much more difficult for everybody else and you'll see improvements if you it also helps the client right what's the point in running an a b test program if you don't roll it out onto the website properly you know especially the ones where you're very certain that it's a confirmed increase in conversion or whatever goal it was supposed to meet if that's you know an absolute positive why don't you roll it out onto the website isn't the whole idea to make the website better, not to have it kind of stuck together with bits of sellotape of potential winning things that were quite good six but, months but, ago? But Abby, it, it, it is working right now. Why do we need to move it into our website? It is already working. And this is the point because people see it as working, <laughs> but it's sat in a blooming A-B test. Oh, don't get me started. It gets me really angry. <laughs> <laughs> Abby, we made it. Hooray! We made it. We made it through all 10, uh, barely within the hour. Uh, so one of my final, final questions for you uh, on this topic, uh, how much time should people uh, expect to um, uh, uh, spend on, on QA? What's the, what's an, if, if you go through all these uh, experiments, uh, so from from the point when, when people send you the, the experiment for QA until the moment that it can actually go live. What's usually 
the the time in between that. Oh, how long's a piece of string? Depends on the complexity <laughs> of the experiment, right? Sure, but there, there must be some average there, and uh, you have a nice standard deviation that's either <laughs> very large. Yeah, I wish the answer was that simple, but it's not going yeah. to be because this is QA. So it really depends on yeah. who, how complicated the experiment is for a start, right? If you're making a copy change to a homepage, that's not going to take very long. If you're making something more complicated, like, oh, I don't know, PDP redesign. I've done yeah. those before. <laughs> Web, a complete, complete <laughs> website redesign. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's measured, the time is directly related to the complexity of the experiment. But then you yeah. need to add in how many audiences that you're checking for, how many devices that you need to be looking at, right? Invariably, it's at least four or five whether it's mobile devices or different browsers or different resolutions, right? You're going to have at least five in that mix, I would say, as a minimum, if you're doing a proper QA, <laughs> an AVI yeah. QA. So, yes, it is quite time intensive, but that gets better on the provision that you've done all that stuff that we talked about previously, okay? So if we've got a good spec, good designs, clients happy with it, you know, nobody's thrown a last minute request in that's another thing to try and avoid if you can and when i say a, a request i mean something that fundamentally changes the entire experiment um so i'd say for a medium range qa of an a b test probably around half a day ish but don't quote me on that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's heavily caveated. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I guess when when you if it's something you still want to, or need to start with, um, um, leave the experiments behind. Just QA the website. Start with that. Yeah, it's <laughs> probably enough to fix already. Honestly, yeah. So standard order on a website, I'll usually find between a hundred and two hundred individual issues that need to be addressed, and that might not just be a functional issue. For example, that covers. I guess a new term would be for it would be crux, C-R-U-X, I suppose. So it's, it's kind of like a heuristic that covers everything. So functionality, yeah. UX, CRO, conversion blockers, all of that kind of stuff. But invariably, I'll get like 200 items on there. And of course, you're going to prioritize that, right? With your preferred prioritization yeah. model, whatever that might be. Another blog topic, I think. Um, yeah. But yes, so easily. And a lot of those, let's say half of them, really should be addressed before you even think about doing it. Because what people don't realize is by fixing the stuff that's already broken, you're actually starting optimization. You don't need to jump into the shiny, oh, let's do A-B testing. It's amazing. You need yeah. to start at a more fundamental level than that. So if you've got a bug on your website that's stopping people buying something, for example, you're going to get a much higher return on investment by just fixing that. You don't need an A-B test to tell you that needs to be fixed. You just need to fix yeah. it, right? So invariably, there, yeah. there are often so many projects also that, that uh, go live on the website as an, as an MVP and then they're live and, oh yeah, it works. And then they move on to the next project, but it's still... <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, it, it, was, it was viable by definition, yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, hopefully, uh, but it's still minimal. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that is a solid piece of advice. I'd get an audit done any day of the week because for the cost of an audit compared to running an AB entire, you know, whole yeah, shabam, yeah. 
you get much higher ROI. And that you've just reminded me of a very important point, actually, about leaving tests in A-B test platforms. And that's around code maintenance. Want to take a guess? No, go ahead. <laughs> Damn it, I thought I was going to catch you. Um, so the problem we have with leaving stuff sat in a platform, right, is say you have something sat in there for a year. And I have had that experience. Yeah, because it, it doesn't work work like it's supposed to work anymore because the website changed. Exactly yeah. that. So the longer that is left in there, you then have to account for changes on the core website and then updating that experiment so it's not broken anymore. Yeah. And that never happens. It, it's never going to be maintained, right? So... Yeah, just a, a key point there. Another reason not to leave them in that AB test. Well, Abby, thanks so much for sharing all these uh, these tips uh, with us. Um, so doing doing QA for the sum, besides all, all those uh, practical practical points, do you have some more overall insights that you uh, think you have picked up on that others in zero or UX <laughs> should uh, should start uh, um, uh, looking into? Um, yeah, so I guess a little bit about what we were just saying. Sometimes the simplest approach approach to optimization is the best. So starting with that site audit, right? Stop trying to run before you can walk. Get your house in order before you try and do anything else. Sometimes yeah. the best things you can do are staring you right in the face if only you had somebody to point them out to you, okay? People working on the same website day in and day out, they kind of get blinkers on. They find shortcuts to do stuff, and it's not really reflective of what the users are doing. And sometimes getting somebody in to come in afresh and go, ooh, <laughs> 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 I, I can see some problems here. But that's one of the simplest ways to start optimizing whatever your digital product is. Yeah, get a fresh set of eyes of it because we're all guilty of getting too familiar with stuff, right? We don't see it. We, we figure out ways around it, or we don't want to see it because it's a problem don't want to deal with so sometimes yeah. it just takes somebody to go oh by the way did you know <laughs> so that's that's kind of one of the things and another thing that i'd like to see is um kind of people paying a bit more attention to how we can incorporate principles of accessibility into our ab testing that would be lovely so that has a couple of impacts one is kind of just making sure that our A-B tests are accessible to everybody, right? Everybody knows that websites need to be accessible for users these days, otherwise you get into hot water if they decide to sue you. And a lot of people are now doing that option. So let's make sure our websites are accessible to start off with. And then let's make sure that when we're A-B testing, we're not compromising that accessibility of these websites. Another impact people don't think about. And it's evident because, you know, I've, I've looked at some A-B tests and I, I can't even read what, what it's saying <laughs> because the design, the font's so tiny or the contrast is so low. Maybe it's just because I'm 43 and I'm getting old now. I don't know what the answer is. But, you know, have a look at the accessibility guidelines, right? There are re some really good examples of 10 top tips to, uh, of accessible guidelines that you must follow that will make an awesome impact. And I've run tests yeah. that have, in as simple as making font size bigger, right? Making contrast better. And they've won, right? And they won yeah. in particular, you know, with older audiences, right? So people my age, and it's proven that simple stuff like that not only helps everybody in general, 
because you're making the site more accessible for everybody, that it has a massive impact on certain audiences that are affected. And, you know, people think, oh, accessibility, that's like people with disabilities. It's really not. It's, it, it benefits everybody. So whether you're Joe down the street at 22 or Abby sat here in Oxford at 43 with glasses on, it makes no difference. The impact is, is really substantial. So I'd love to see people doing more work around improving that on websites. It'd be awesome. Yeah. Abby, my final question for you. Any, uh, any books you're reading right now or you would, uh, would not want to recommend to our audience? Goodness, if I had the time to read books now, I'd be living the life of luxury, honestly. <laughs> 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 the best I get to read at the minute is, um, you know, homeschooling stuff. But um, I'm going to recommend one book because, you know, caveats aside, I did help edit this. <laughs> But it's a book by Daphne Tideman and Ward Van Gasteren. I think I said that night. <laughs> You're going to have to pronounce that properly for me. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, Daphne Tiedemann and Wart van Gasteren. They're Dutch. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're not the easiest names. She, she'll forgive me. I'm sure that I've, you know, <laughs> totally rubbished how to pronounce those names. Yeah. Um, but it's called Growing Happy Clients. And I believe it's available on Amazon. But it's a really yeah. nice book because I think even, you know, as an expert, whatever that definition is, definition is um, sometimes we kind of forget to just go back to the basics and kind of critique our own performance and our own development because we, we're just kind of trying to get through every single day. Um, but helping Daphne with this book kind of gave me some good, kick up the pants moments if you want you know to try and you know look at things in a different way because after 16 years it's inevitable that you can, you can look at stuff in one way after a while there's only so yeah. much growth you can do um but Daphne's book was it was a really good read and quite quite funny in places as well so uh yeah a bit of light light bedtime reading perhaps growing happy clients nice thank you so much Abby uh thanks for sharing all of this this uh, with us Hope to talk to you soon and uh, good luck with uh, homeschooling. Oh, thanks so much. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> and this concludes Season 3, Episode 8 of the Zero Cafe Podcast with Abby Howe. Make sure to check out the show notes on the Zero Cafe website for links to some additional information on today's topic. In the next episode, I'll be talking to Alexander Fabian, data scientist at EXP, or better known as the Microsoft Experimentation Platform team, I'm going to talk about his personal take on kickstarting and keeping the A-B testing momentum going in your company. Talk to you then, and always be optimizing.